So chapter 19, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. So the first 10 verses here, we're going to see the salvation of Zacchaeus. This, this is unique of uh, Luke. It's not found in the other synoptic gospels. And notice he's passing through Jericho. Remember that there was two Jerichos. The old Jericho when they conquered the land and that was cursed in, um, in the rebuilding. And then you have um, the new Jericho that was built by Herod and his son Archelaus. Uh, beautiful winter palace. Um, uh, if you've been with us at Masada, um, Herod was uh, an incredible builder. Um, here again, they have theaters, um, hippodromes, uh, gymnasiums, uh, bathhouses, uh, everything. Jericho is a, a very beautiful place. And so, again, uh, no contradiction. If you search out the record of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put them all together, they all work out. Uh, Jericho is uh, situated in an important trade route uh, to the east, up north, to Sidon and Tyre. Damascus all the way up there. Um, over to the east, um, it had palm forests, uh, balsam groves, dates. Uh, if you drive down there uh, today, you'll see all kinds of dates, tree, palm trees and that. It was a wealthy city, and therefore it would yield high taxes to Rome, uh, even as Capernaum was a tax center, as we've seen. Josephus called it a divine region, others a paradise of God. Uh, it was five miles from the um, Jordan and 17 miles, about 17 miles from Jerusalem. Therefore, now Jesus and his disciples could have been leaving old Jericho and entering Herod's new Jericho that was just a bit closer to Jerusalem, in verse 2, it says, Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So Zacchaeus lived in the upper city of Jericho, I'm sure the new one, where the wealthy people were. Um, the aristocrats, interesting that his name, Zacchaeus, means pure or righteous. You never associate that with the tax collector. Here, he would be better proper interpreted uh, a, a commissioner of taxes. In other words, he had people under him and he um, watched over them and collected from them. So he was on the top of the food chain. He, he ate first. Um, that statement is only declared one time in the New Testament right here. The chief tax collector. Um, remember, he was seen as a traitor, all tax collectors. They bidded uh, from Rome, the, the tax region or jurisdiction, and whoever won the bid, they then were only responsible to give Rome the amount or quota that they desired and required, and then the remainder would be their own. So they would become very prosperous, even as anybody who collects taxes becomes very prosperous. You know, our politicians, they wouldn't even think of... Uh, of uh, minimizing spending and entitlements. They just think we need to raise more taxes because it's always much more funner to spend somebody else's money than your own. Uh, that's just the way it is. Um, in verse 3 and 4, the determination of Zacchaeus to see Jesus is given to us. It says, And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. 
So he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to seek him, for he was going to pass that way. So the crowds were blocking his view because he's a short guy and um, he couldn't see Jesus. Uh, he's gotten word that he's coming his way. Um, Zacchaeus couldn't take a chance on not seeing him. He's a tax collector. And he couldn't take a chance on getting into the crowds because he is a tax collector also. Because they'll be elbowing him. Get, you know, I mean, he's a short guy and all that. And you know, they'll do him a number in the crowds. Um, perhaps Zacchaeus heard about Jesus. Um, you know, all the healing, all the uh, cleansing of the lepers, the different things like that. Uh, the tense means he was repeatedly seeking to see Jesus. Now, that is said about other people, but it was for wrong reason, um, um, for seeing miracles or something like that. But here we see Zacchaeus as a sincere seeker, as we will see the outcome being his salvation. And so he climbs up into the sycamore tree to see Jesus when he would pass by that certain route. And the sycamore tree or mulberry tree is about 60 to 80 feet in diameter with all the branches. And the branches are low to the ground, so it's easy for him to get up there. And he climbs up there. And he would be able to be looking straight down when Jesus passes by. And, and he would be undetected. Um, it's interesting how we try to figure all things out, how we'll pull things off and how we'll protect ourselves. And we, get, we got it all under control. Um, Verse 5 through 7, the seeking out of Zacchaeus by Jesus now is given to us. It's reversed on him. Um, and when Jesus came to the place, the place where he was up in the tree, the exact location, he looked up and he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house. He must have got blown away. I must stay at your house. When do we hear that? When Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. He knew a Samaritan woman was there that would respond to the gospel who was hurting, who was lost in John 4, 4. So here, Jesus knew all about Zacchaeus. Very likely, it was the reason why he went through the second city of Jericho. Jesus knew everything. No one had to tell him anything. Um, he wasn't guessing. He wasn't just shooting in the dark. Jesus is called a friend of publicans or tax collectors and sinners throughout the Gospel of Luke. 17, 734, chapter 15, 2 through 23, you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost two sons. And the one got saved, usually called a prodigal, but I don't like that because usually you use the prodigal as a Christian who goes back in the world and comes back. That's not the case. It's a wrong interpretation. We showed that. That son that got saved was not saved. He got saved and then came back. He was never saved in the house. So the word prodigal has been misused and abused from the pulpit much today. It's not talking about a Christian who goes into the world and comes back. Though that may happen, that's not a prodigal. A prodigal is one who's not born again. He's heard about the scriptures. He's raised in a Christian home. Walk, goes in the world and gets saved. That's what the record teaches. And so Zacchaeus um, 
in verse 6 responds in obedience, instantly receiving Jesus joyfully. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. The errors tense indicates action simultaneously with the heart and the words of Jesus. I mean, you know, it's like when you got saved, you went wherever it was and you heard the word of God. And as the minister was ministering the word, whoever was teaching, it was at the same time those things were going forward. Jesus was dealing with your heart and simultaneously was doing a work. And he was knocking on the door of your heart and dealing with your lost condition. And you were in track and in pulse with the ministry of Jesus as he's ministering to you. Like Matthew, the tax collector. And like the tax collector that stood afar off in that parable of the publican and the, and the Pharisee praying. He stood afar off asking God to propitiate him. And he went away justified. And you find those two in Luke 5.27 and 18.13 through 14. Matthew in 5. The uh, tax collector far off in 18. Interesting, J. Vernon McGee believed that um, the publican there at the temple afar off was really Zacchaeus. I don't know how he draws that conclusion, but that's what he believed. That, that in fact it was and he makes this connection. Now Zacchaeus certainly lived again in the upper uh, wealthy part of the city with all the aristocrats. So in verse 7 it says, um, but when they saw it, they all complained saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. So the response of the people was very critical towards Jesus. Not Zacchaeus. The crowd's and if there were any religious leaders, as they often were in the crowds, the words here, complain, means to murmur. To murmur to each other continuously because Jesus had the nerve to lodge with a sinner. Now, be certain of one thing is that Jesus did not care what people thought about him. But be certain also that Jesus never, never took up with sinners who were practicing sin and he was there. So we are to be friends of sinners when they would approach us, when there's an open door for us to minister. But we don't go out of our way to hang out with sinners in their sinful lifestyles. Are we clear on that? Because this is the new evangelism of the emergent church. Okay? Which first began with YWAM. That they already are Christians, those pagans. We just have to tell them the name of their gods is Jesus. So there's no need for repentance. This is years back. You have to be careful of the philosophy. You have to think and listen to what's being taught. Okay? Um... Jesus is called a friend of sinners and tax collectors. In other words, none of them, you know, the only people that felt uncomfortable around Jesus were religious people. <laughs> sinners um, didn't feel uncomfortable. They, they, they knew who they were and they knew certainly who Jesus was and his love and, 
and his gentleness towards them attracted them. Some repented, some did not. In verse 8 down to 10, we have the conversion between, or the conversation between uh, Zacchaeus and Jesus here. Um, Verse 8, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus here declares that he gives half of his goods. Now, often Jews are accused of being greedy and Stingy. It's a euphemism in many places of the world. And yet here you have a Jew who is saying, a, tax, a, a commissioner of tax collection. And that he gives half of his goods to the poor and he restores fourfold to those wrong. Now the law said that theft was to be repaid fourfold. And if theft was found on the person, it was doubled. And he confessed his theft, it was to add 20% to it. And you find this in Exodus 21, 1 and 4, and number 6, 5 and 5, 7. And so here you have a, a, a Jew who's living really a, a pretty exemplary life, though he is considered the scum of the earth as a tax collector, a traitor to Israel. Often, this verse is interpreted as the proclamation of Zacchaeus having repented and accepted Jesus. In other words, that this was the change brought by the repentance. Not so. This is not the case. The tense is the present tense. This was the confession of Zacchaeus about what he had been doing and continued to do before he was saved. I presume that you know people who are not born again and are moral, ethical, and have upright character because they're creating the image of God. God's given us that moral base. It does happen. In fact, some good moral pagans put to shame some quote-unquote Christians. (laughs) That's just the facts, Jack. Now, Zacchaeus stands in contrast to the rich young ruler that we read back a few chapters. With God, salvation is possible for a rich person. When they don't live for their wealth. When they don't make wealth their God. When their heart is repentant. In chapter 18, 18, 24, and 27, we get that account. Now, in verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. Jesus is not saying to Zacchaeus, and he's talking to Zacchaeus, and those in the backdrop are listening, that he was saved by these ethical 
and honorable works. Works of benevolence. No. There is a time lapse between verse 8 and verse 9. Which is the time when Jesus is in the house of Zacchaeus. And he's ministering to him and he gets saved. And then the result of that is that Jesus says today... Salvation has been come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. He's not a son of Abraham because he gives half of his goods away and restores fourthful. He's a son of Abraham because he believes in the Messiah. So, maybe this is a little different than you've heard these verses interpreted before. Particularly the confession about giving. That's not the result of his salvation. He was doing that as already a Jew. Pretty impressive. And so in verse 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus declares here the purpose of the kingdom of God. By his coming. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the proclamation of Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the need of sinners to repent. That's what the kingdom of God's all about, ladies and gentlemen. The emphasis is on the word come. The title Son of Man is a messianic term, emphasizing his incarnation, his humanity. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Incarnation. Philippians 2, 5 on down, He emptied Himself of His glory. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but He took on the form of a servant and humbled Himself, even to the point of the death of the cross. And for that reason, a name is given to Him above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Incarnation. Wow. He became just like us without sin. (laughs) Just like the first Adam before the fall. Called the last Adam. So you either are in the first Adam, fallen, or you're in the last Adam, redeemed. One of the two. In verse 11, down to 27, we have now the parable of the ten minas. And it's interesting how... Luke just arranges his material by the direction of the Holy Spirit as he's writing to Theophilus in an orderly manner that he may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world and that. And um, in 11 he says, Now as they heard these things, so verse 11 looks back to what just happened. As they heard these things that Jesus said about Zacchaeus and the kingdom of God and salvation, He spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he nails their bad theology here. The reason is declared for this parable. The twelve disciples had to have been present. They heard these things as Jesus declared to Zacchaeus. And hearing these things, he purposely declares this parable. Correcting their misconception about the kingdom that it was going to be established as soon as they got 
to Jerusalem. He's about six hours away if he would go straight through to get to Jerusalem from this point. Verse 12 says, Therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and he said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, uh, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So the particulars of the parable are given to us here. Notice the principal characters is a certain old man in verse 12, who went to a far country to receive a kingdom. Don't miss that. He was going to receive a kingdom. The ten servants of the nobleman were summoned to entrust them ten minutes each to do business till he came or he returned. This was their orders. Uh, the key for faithful service is to do business till he comes. There is no retirement for a Christian. <laughs> God will retire you to heaven. Okay? Just keep doing what he's told you to do. This parable is not to be confused with the parable of talents in Matthew 25, which depicts different gifts by the talents and the trust that is given to them. Here, the focus is equal opportunity in our Christian faith. What we do with our lives for Jesus to share his word and the kingdom of God. The parable of the talents is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Different emphasis. Right there, the, the, the guy does not go away to seek out and receive a kingdom. He just leaves to return. And the focus is different. The minas speak of a Greek coin worth about 100 drachma. Uh, a day's wage is one drachma. So you can see that it's a, a quite a large amount for those days. Um, we are to redeem the time because the days are evil, we're told in Ephesians 5.16. And uh, when we first got born again in the early 70s, we, we believed that Jesus was coming back any minute, any day. We believed that so everybody had vans, we would fill up the vans and take people down to the tent for the concerts. And then when they went into the building, and we just uh, we were just telling people about Jesus. We weren't concerned about this or that or anything And um here we are 40-some years later, and we're still doing the same thing. Am I disappointed? Nope. Jesus is still coming. He's um, 41 years uh, closer than when I first believed. Um, that's all. And so here now, um, the enemies of the nobleman in verse 14 are those who rejected his rule over them. Some believe that this is an illusion, this entire parable of um, um, the son of Herod, Archelaus, uh, Archelaus um, who um, asked Rome in 4 BC to make him king because he only had the title of Tetrarch, uh, a fourth ruler. Uh, his three other brothers had uh, a, a fourth of the kingdom ruling. But... Um, 
In, in fact, he, um, he did not receive a kingdom. Uh, an entire uh, embassy of Jews went and objected to uh, his rule as king of Judah. And he was denied the title of king. And so, though there is a similar parallel, this is not what Jesus is talking about. Archelaus did not receive the title of king or a kingdom, and Jesus did. And so, um, the nobleman here returns, having received the kingdom, and he commands the servants to come and give an account of that which he had entrusted them with, all of them equally endowed. There is no disadvantage here at all. So verse 15 gives you um, his return and his accountability of being called. In verse 16 down to 27, now you have the servants presenting themselves at the given account of their stewardship. In um, verse 16 and 70 says, Then came the first saying, Master, your minna has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have, have authority over ten cities. So the first earned ten minas, doubling what had been given to him. He was given authority over ten cities. The key is you have been, um, you, you were faithful in the very little. So it's never the amount, because all receive equal amounts. It's what is given to you. And here again, all of us have, been, have received salvation. All of us have the word of God. None of us are at a disadvantage regarding the kingdom of God or the good news of the gospel. I am not more able to do what I do than you. On the level that God has prepared you to share the kingdom and the word of God. You have the same Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. You have the same Bible. You got saved the same way I did. I don't have any better salvation than you. We are the same on every level there. Now, 18 and 19, the second comes. And he came saying, Master, you... Your minna has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. So he was equally faithful and given authority over five. Notice he didn't say, well, you didn't do as good as the other one. Well, you are an inferior servant in proportion. God may give you um, the same opportunity as another person but in a different location, the place where God puts you may be very ripe and many come to the Lord. While the other person, the hearts are so hard and he's just like a Jeremiah. But what God requires is that you do what he's called you to do. Because we save nobody. He's the one that saves. Some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. In verse 20 and 21, there came a third. Then another came saying, Master, here is your minna, which I have kept put away 
in a handkerchief or a sweatband. Same thing. For I fear you because you are an austere man, a harsh man. You collect what you do not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Interesting. He explained that he feared the nobleman. And so his fear crippled him. He did nothing. What God has given to you and I, you cannot do nothing. You cannot just get saved and sit down. You cannot get saved and say nothing. You just can't do it. 22 to 26, the nobleman addresses the fearful servant. And these are really the words of Jesus. The parallel is here. The nobleman is Jesus. The servants are his disciples. Those that hate him are the Jews. In 22 to 26, he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And so he's rebuked. With all this potential, it's buried. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. Because see, we don't think the way God thinks and we don't see things the way God sees them. He responds, For I say to you, here's the authority, that to everyone who has will be given And from him who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. Those that are faithful, more will be given to them. To those that much is given, much more is required. Luke 12 tells us at the end of the chapter. And so here again, even the little that is given to us, we lose that. We lose that. It is required that a steward be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 and 5. This will take place at the Bema Seat of Christ. Where we will be judged for what we've done by the motives of our hearts. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And the Bema Seat is mentioned in Romans 14, 10. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. When the word church is raptured, we will go before the beam of seat of Christ to be rewarded for how and why we did it, not how much and what we did. That is irrelevant. You and I focus on how much and what. God focuses on why did you do it and how did you do it. Did you do it out of love? Did you do it in humility? Did you do it because you love the person? And that's what he focuses on. Verse 27, 
the enemies refusing his rule over them are punished now, slain. But bring those here, those enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. John 1.11 says he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Speaking of the Jews. And Jesus said there's come one coming in his own name. Him you will receive. Talking about the Antichrist. Daniel 9, um, 24 to 27 tells us of the uh, seven weeks of Daniel. That verse 27 tells you of the Antichrist who will break that covenant with Israel and make it with Israel for those seven years. 28 down to 40, you have the triumphal entry that we touched on this morning. Jesus into Jerusalem. It's covered in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and, and John 12. Uh, when he has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem no matter where you go from. Um, Jericho, probably about 800 feet below sea level. Uh, Jerusalem, about 24, 2500 feet. You've got an incredible uphill. Um, this Dead Sea is the lowest place on the earth, the closest place to hell. Um, and now we've got sinkholes in it because it's shrinking even more. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens, even as uh, there are so many minerals, uh, so much wealth in there. And uh, that will be, I believe, one of the reasons why Russia will attack. Um, Israel's just found all kinds of uh, huge fields of natural gas and petroleum and different things. And, um, and all this is just kind of... You know, uh, leading us into that last uh, attack, torture by Russia with her confederacy of Islamic nations. Um, verse 28 marks the last division of the Passion Week that has been coming on for six months from chapter 9, verse 51. At the confession of Caesarea Philippi, by Peter, the year of the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he headed back down to Jerusalem. And verse 29 says, And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, that he sent two of his disciples. Um, these both cities are on the east side of the Mount of Olives, on the back side, not the face of the Mount of Olives, the face of the city. And um, they... Um, um, they're known villages. Uh, Bethphage is, is not known where exactly the location, but um, they're um, just a couple of miles, uh, at least Bethany, from, um, from the city. And um, Jesus is going to be coming over the crest of the mountain of Olives and then down, as we'll see. Um, Bethany means house of dates, and um, Bethphage means um, house of unripe figs. Um, and these were all staples of the country. And uh, if you go to Israel, there's much of that when you're eating. And um, Solomon built houses, as I said this morning, for his pagan wives there on the Mount of Olives in First Kings 11:7. And Jesus will not only ascend back up to heaven from there, as Acts chapter 1 tells us, but Zechariah 14:4 tells us that when he descends from the second coming, his foot will touch the Mount of Olives and it's going to cleave in two and uh, torrents of water will come out from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea to heal it and down to the Mediterranean. And the topography will be changed and the whole millennial kingdom will be turned back to the um, um, pre-fall period of uh, the lamb will lay down with the lion, so on and so forth. A little kid will play with a, a poisonous snake and it will not uh, hurt them. And uh, it'll be an interesting time as we return with him. 
And so all the miracles that Jesus had done, all the things that he was doing, the healing, the cleansing, the people were rejoicing. It was just a very joyous occasion because they in their mind were were concluding that the kingdom was going to be established. Jesus was going to knock off Rome. Jesus was going to set up the 12 thrones of Israel. And all 12 disciples were going to sit on those thrones as he had prophesied. But they made a big mistake. There was going to be a prophetic timeout. The prophetic clock was going to be stopped. The age of grace. All that will happen after Lord re- raptures his church, we go to the Bema Seat of Christ, we spend three, uh, seven years with him in heaven, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then we come back down to fight the battle of Armageddon with Jesus, we come back for a thousand year honeymoon, and we reign with him, and then we have the white throne judgment, and then the new Jerusalem, and all eternity, whatever God has for us. And so the mighty works, the power of God, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Notice the word blessed. We get our word eulogy, to eulogize somebody at a funeral, to speak well of them. The King who comes in the name of the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, He was sent from the Father. Um... The perfect participle uh, means that it's God the Father who is doing the blessing to Jesus. He's the one that sent him. He's the one that gave his son. He's the one that made him the mediator, the Lamb of God, the Redeemer of the world. Uh, Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. When he was born in Luke 2.14, it was peace on earth. The proclamation of the birth of a Savior that men might have peace in their heart while here on earth as they did the will of God to receive the Son as Savior. Now you have the result of the uh, efficaciousness of the work of atonement as He would go and die on the cross and be risen from the dead so that now there would be peace in heaven for all who would call on the name of the Lord. Heaven would no longer be at war with them. God is at war with you if you're not a Christian. We are justified through the grace of God, having made peace with God. Those before I was born again, God was not at peace with me. His wrath was upon me. I needed to repent, acknowledging my sin, that the peace of God would rule my heart and that I have peace with God. Peace with God is justification. Peace of God is a recipient as a result of my relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. And so, in 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So, in other words, uh, Jesus is saying here that the worship of him was absolutely appropriate and fitting. And if these individuals would keep silent... Nature itself, the stones would cry out because the day was divinely appointed. What was going on was fulfilled scripture, a very key, a very important line of demarcation that has been crossed here, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Um, again, this peace 
is due to the fact that Jesus is paying um, the price for sin. And the Pharisees are not too happy about this. They don't believe in Jesus. Um, um, the uh, 69 weeks of Daniel, as we said this morning, um, is fulfilled um, by Jesus Christ. Um, 483 years to the day, uh, 173,880 days based on a, a biblical calendar year. The Genesis calendar are 360 days, not the Gregorian 365. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson has done a, a masterful job on this. You can get his commentary, his book, The Coming Prince. And um, he makes that very strong case. And yet, um, uh, Jesus fulfilling this from the command that was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14, 445 B.C. If you take that and push it forward, 483 years or the 117, uh, 173,880 days to the day on the 6th of April of 32 A.D., Jesus Christ rode in here on Palm Sunday. So that leaves one week, the 70th week, Daniel 9.27. Daniel 9.24-26 has been fulfilled. Daniel 9.27 is yet to be fulfilled. The last week, the 70th week, seven-year tribulation. Tribulation, first three and a half, great tribulation, the last half. And so what will initiate and commence that last seven years is the rapture of the church. Blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in, Romans eleven twenty five, The blessed hope, Titus 2, 13. And so, here, verse 40, 41, down to 44, we have now the weeping prophet Jesus over Jerusalem. We've seen the king, um, um, uh, the prophet here, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The high privilege that Israel as a nation, the nation is personified here. Jesus is pronouncing judgment. They had failed to mark their high privilege, having the scriptures, having the very day. They ignored it. They didn't recognize it. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Speaking about Titus, the general of Rome, the 10th legion of Rome. And they surround the city. They let no one in, no one out, starve them out, no water, no food. Trouble starts from within. Bands of people who want to steal food and everything. There's murder. There's assaults. There's rapes. They're eating their own children. Josephus gives us the account. And then they conquer the city, as we'll see. Hear the judgment. And level you, verse 44, and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you and you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. Jesus shared this also in Matthew 24 as he sat in the Mount of Olives. Mark 13, Luke 21. They um, set the temple on fire. All the gold melted. So they dismantled it stone by stone. 
Not one stone was left upon another. Uh, you put olive trees around all the walls and the buildings that are limestone. Olive trees have natural oil. They burn hot. They burn long. You heat up the limestone. There's water cisterns all throughout the city. You cap those with huge stones. And you've got a pressure being built up that is just like a bomb. The Romans knew exactly how to conquer people. They were ruthless experts in warfare. And so they did not recognize the time of their visitation. It speaks for salvation. You, if you're born again, you responded to the day of your visitation by the grace of God. He didn't force you. He allowed you to choose for yourself whether you're going to believe that He's Messiah able to save you or whether He cannot save you because He's not Messiah. That's a determination and decision that individuals make. You make that decision before you die. You do not make that decision after you die. There is no second opportunity. It's appointed unto every man to die once. And then the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Anybody who gives you false hope about a second chance after death is a deceiver and a liar. Get away from them. Verse 45, on down to 48, we have the last cleansing of the temple here. As Jesus, this is the last week. He went into the temple, the court area where all the buildings and everything's at. He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Not the people, but those who had set up their merchandising booths, the Sadducees were the materialists. They didn't believe in angels or spirit or the resurrection. And they just saw it as a business. There are a lot of people as pastors and in Christian work. They see it as a business. They see the people of God as a commodity. They are well organized. They use marketing techniques. They're motivational speakers. God help them. I think of Blinky. I forget his name all the time. The huge, uh, called like you know, stadiums are full, and he doesn't preach the gospel. The judgment. Go home tonight. Turn them on. If one person sits under you. And you don't preach the gospel. Woe to you. When you have 20, 30, 50, 100,000. And you don't preach the gospel. Woe to you tenfold. And you're passing yourself as a Christian. As a pastor. As a reverend. I wouldn't want to be you for all the money you get. Your money is not going to do you any good in hell. Trust me. And so here, 
He says, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. They um, heightened the prices of the sacrifices. They disqualified yours, find any blemish, and you would have to buy one of the ones they had pre-approved. And of course, you know, as I said this morning, it's like going to LAX and buying a Coke and a hamburger. It's $20, right? Or at a Lakers game or a baseball game. Well, there's the same thing there. Uh, no different. Um, they would exchange money to the temple shekel, so they would take pay a percentage, even as you do when you travel. You have to exchange your currency. The charge is a certain percentage. And literally, you can go back and forth, back and forth, and never leave that place. Uh, and then when you do leave that place, you won't have no money because every a little chunk just gets sucked in by the person who's doing the transaction. It's the best business in the world. And no factories, no inventory. You don't have to have an office, nothing. You just change money. That's it. Now, Verse 47 says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. So this has always been the case. It has reached its peak. They will make the transaction with Judas Iscariot, and they will arrest him. And as we move through, we'll see his trial, and they will ultimately crucify him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. In other words, they um, were afraid to do anything against Jesus because of the people. There is a great protection in numbers. And there's a greater protection when the people of God gather together. The Bible in the Hebrew says, Forsake not the gathering of the saints as the manner of some is that you would fellowship with other Christians, that you would gather to the church to be part of the church, to grow in the church, to get taught, to be part of it, being used of God. It's a great blessing. Do you realize what a blessing this church is to the apartments across the street, to the businesses in the neighborhood all around here? That Christians come here they're praying for this place, people getting saved, people being used. There's a protection around this area. I guarantee you by the hand of God. Where if this building was used for whatever else, it would be darkness. There's light here. Absolute light. Because Jesus is here. His word is being taught. And we are the people of God. Um, the word, there's a strong verb. They kept... Uh, they could not tear themselves from him. And as I said, Jesus never spent the night in the city the last week. He went out by the Mount of Olives or maybe um, Bethany in the house of Lazarus and then came in the morning and taught teaching. Sometimes people say, what do you guys do? You guys, you guys, all you guys do is teach. What else do you want me to do? If I didn't teach you, what would we do on Sunday morning, Sunday evening? Thursday, play games, bingo. <laughs> the purpose of the church is to perfect the saints, to do the work of ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 on down to 16. That you not be tossed to and fro whether we win the doctrine. That you be fully mature in the full stature of Christ. That every joint, every part of the body is doing its share to full efficiency under the motive of love. 
You don't have to worry about what somebody else is doing. Just make sure that you're doing what God has called you to do according to your gifts, and everything will work out just fine. He's the head. We're the members. He sends the orders. He does the work. And he gets the glory. Those are the rules. <laughs> there is no great organizer here. <laughs> Only what the Lord desires to do according to his word and his spirit. And so, his life is coming to an end. You and I have come into this world and we want to live, but we're going to die if the Lord tarries. Jesus came into this world to die. There's a big difference. He came to die in my place, in your place. Deserving none of what he received. He died as our substitute. That's why we can call upon him and be saved. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for every person here, Lord. And I pray that you just deal with our hearts. And Lord, we never forget these simple and such valuable truths, Lord. And Lord, we would be uh, looking for you. And we would be busy about your business. And that we would not be discouraged in well-doing. For you are faithful. As you're praying, if, um, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. And if you believe what I have shared about Jesus, then you can be saved. You can call upon him. And he will honor your open heart. And he will give you a new heart, a new mind, an eternal life as he makes you a son or daughter. Maybe you're over the internet. You can say this prayer right where you're at is a prayer of repentance. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. Tony, my right, your left by that door. I'd love to talk with you. He'll give you that Bible, absolutely free. Answer any questions you might have. Pray with you. Give you a hug. You're free to leave. But don't leave here the same way you came in. And if you've been doing what you're doing right now, for the majority of your Christian life, sitting, shame on you. <laughs> 